one and done TV. Hello and welcome to One and Done TV. I am your co-host Ian Hamilton. And I am the last one of your co-hosts, John Polking. And this is the podcast where we review television shows that only lasted one season. Now, that's they only lasted one season, ah, meaning they were last canceled. Man. Last Man did one season, which you'll get in a second, or you already understand, because that's the title of the episode, and you're listening on a medium that showed you what show we're about to talk about. So, whatever. Uh, we talk about shows that were canceled. That's my point. Not limited series, all right? That is different. So, stop suggesting limited series to me. We're not here to talk about John Adams starring Paul Giamatti. We've not released an episode yet, but we've gotten so much feedback on this. And yes. That's it's exhausting. Right. <laughs> um, John, what did I miss? Uh not much other than, you know, we are going to be talking about these shows, what they were, what they left behind, and ultimately what made them one and done. In 2021, FX on Hulu made a show that rode the political drama of House of Cards, the apocalyptic terror of The Walking Dead, and the strong women of The Handmaid's Tale all into one. And by the way, this is a TV show that's about every man with a Y chromosome in the world dying all at once. But that didn't stop them from cutting the cord on Why the Last Man after seven episodes. But first, let's talk about some other stuff we're watching. Yeah, this John? is a depressing topic. I Yeah, you I, got I anything with... lighter? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, Schindler's List, uh, generally lighter. Okay, I mean something you're watching Oh, something lighter. I'm watching. I mean, speaking of FX on Hulu, have you been watching the new season of Atlanta? No, I haven't. Actually, oh. I could have gone to the world premiere, too, and I missed it. Oh, you and your industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I just, How uh, is it? I just watch it uh, the day after on FX on Hulu. Uh, this new season's just incredible. I was rewatching the first two seasons, uh, mm-hmm. to just get, cause it's been what, three years since, uh, season two ended. Yeah. And then they've got season At three least. now it's season four airing later in 2022. Crazy, they, right? They're just on fire. Like everything that Donald Glover touches is so purpose driven and so mm-hmm. stupidly funny and smart and interesting. Uh, just i i can't say too much about any of it without because the joy of atlanta for me is just i never know what the next line is going to be yeah that's what i want out of tv really i, I want to and constantly movies. be surprised by something mm-hmm. and that is such a rare thing especially mm-hmm. in tv to have something where truly anything can happen have I um talked on the podcast about my Janae Ico story? You've told me the Janae Ico story, but you can tell the so listeners. So I, w- I used to be a stagehand at Brooklyn Steel, and she had a show there. If you don't know who Janae Ico is, she sang uh, not the national anthem, but, oh, America the Beautiful at the most recent Super Bowl. Um, she was very nice. I drove her around all day, and... She let me use her phone charger uh, because mine was broken. I was like, look, I I can't 
even get us back to where we are if like my phone's not charged. Also, I was driving her around for a while and I didn't even realize she was the talent. So there you go. But she was very nice. After her show, me and her were just sitting in the van for a while. And I was like, okay, let me put on music that maybe she'll like to. I put on Childish Gambino, which I had been in a phase of at the time of listening to a lot of. And she was like, oh, my God, I love this album. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I just I'm so into it right now. And she talked about how she was in Donald Glover's first album and how she was like, oh, we were best friends. We were just best friends for a while. And it was just so nice. And we did this album in Hawaii. Actually, she talked about how they they did re-records or like photo shoots there basically as an excuse just to go back to Hawaii. Later, I learned that Donald Glover was like kind of in love with her and that she did not reciprocate. And there was like a lot of drama between them. So I felt, how weird is it that I put on like the one album that would cause all this story and she was in the van. But we did talk about Donald Glover and what a fantastic artist he is. Yeah. You're generally just one to... Dig into the wound. Yeah, I stir it up. You tend to take a fresh lemon, just squeeze it all over, you know, a nice open wound. Oh, there's some mercury and some salt as well. (laughs) And I just rubbed it in. Well, it's probably more of an open wound for him. Yeah. To be honest. Also, our friend Matt worked on Atlanta season three and maybe season four too, just as a, I don't know, he was like driving them around looking for location scouting. And he is insistent on giving Donald Glover this, oh, God, this jacket, right, this custom untitled Goose Game jacket that he designed and is getting it embroidered on there. And it's like, nah, he's going to love it. And I'm like, Matt, Donald Glover does not want this untitled Goose Game jacket that has nothing to do with him. And I can just imagine Matt talking Donald Glover's ear off about this and just being like, yeah, sure. Okay. It's like if Moby Dick, if uh, Captain Ahab felt like he was gifting the whale a spear. (laughs) You know what, uh, John? I think on that note, you know what time it is? I think it's showtime, bud. Five, four, three, two, one. Showtime! That was really funny. Gifted Moby Dick with the spear. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't hear like the last 15 seconds of what you said because I had that in my head and I didn't want to lose it. No, it was perfect. <laughs> I, I didn't notice you were checked out and it doesn't matter. Showtime! Why the Last Man, one of the more recent shows that we have done on this podcast. Uh, it started in February of 2021, premiered on FX on Hulu, canceled though mid run, which is very interesting. Wait, you said February 2021, wasn't it? Did I say October? February 21? I meant to say September 2021. Yeah, okay, there we go. We can leave this in. It's all good. They're very different, but I need people, people stop worshiping us as gods. We are flawed, okay? We are flawed. And I like to think of September as the February of fall. So. Yeah. There it is. That's Although where the mix-up no happened. hidden R in there that everybody likes to complain about. It's not because I have a complete disconnect between my brain and my mouth. 
I promise it's not that. Certainly it's not that. So as we all heard before, it premiered in September of 2021, canceled after seven episodes aired, very rare for a streaming show. They Uh, still aired the 10, but they announced it was canceled after seven, right? Yes. And we'll get into the why of that late, Mm -hmm. the why of that later. Okay. This joke's going to get old quick. Before we get into that, like, Ian, I just have really one crucial question to you, you. I think I know what it is, but go ahead. Why the last man? Why not the last man, John? That's what I say. Uh, I think it's because all the other men died. That's the general setup for the show. It's based on a graphic novel that was created in the early 2000s, 2002. And it was published between 2002 to 2008 by a guy named something. Brian Vohan. Vogan. And I think it's just Paya Vaughn. I think it's just Vaughn. Guerra. Okay, well, what about Paya Guerra? Pia Guerra. Not going to even touch that. I'll let you, you sit on that. Damn. Well, yeah. So this is an early to mid-2000s graphic novel that they decided to bring to the television screen. But it actually had, there was a movie they tried to make of it in 2013. The property had kind of got passed around for a while. But then FX picked it up in 2015, uh, just the IP at least. And then they picked it up to pilot in 2018. And then it was ordered to series in 2019. But it didn't make it to series with the original pilot cast, too, which I, I think we could talk about now. It was originally cast with Barry Keegan, Kogan, mm-hmm. Keogan, you know. Sure. That name. The Joker in the most recent Batman movies, as well as the star of Dunkirk. Oh, he's going to be the Joker. Yeah. Wow. He was supposed to be Yorick. Interesting. He was supposed to be Yorick. And it was cast with Diane Lane, as well as a couple other people from the original cast. They shot the pilot. But we'll get into that a little bit more when we talk about why it was canceled. But Mm -hmm. because of all this lead up time there was a reshuffling of the creative team. Mm -hmm. The original creators left the show due to creative differences. So the reins of the show were taken over by Eliza Clark, who was a writer for The Killing and Animal Kingdom. Have you seen that? I have not, though the movie that it's based on is a movie that I should have watched. Wow. So... You don't know anything about it. No, other than it has Jackie Weaver and it's Australian. I don't know who that is. And we are getting so far (laughs) off track at this point. (laughs) This is the wrong rabbit hole to go down. That's fair. So let's talk about The Killing, which is a show I also (laughs) need to watch and haven't and have always meant to. (laughs) People uh, say it's good, but it was that show was canceled because it was like really critically acclaimed, but got no ratings, uh, just like Why the Last Man. And uh, Eliza Clark apparently was a big fan of the original graphic novel. And so when the original pilot did not work with the creative team they had in place, they had called her in as a meeting and she was very passionate about it. She had a vision She had a vision to modernize it a bit. She had the reins. She created a show that was very similar to the graphic novel, but 
did take its own creative direction. I know that there's like there's some backstory she added. All the men are dead, but all of the trans men are still around looking for testosterone, which I guess is an update to the graphic novel. And frankly, a really interesting storyline. I think it adds a lot. I was surprised to learn it wasn't an original part of it. But she uh, she did a lot of stuff to to bring this to the 2020s as well as just make it palatable for TV because this is a lot. This is yeah. a lot to handle. This is a dense show with some very heavy subject matter. And when we come across a show with this kind of density, we want to thrust as much plot onto you, the listener, as we can early on. So this is the exposition dump. As we said, the show is about men dying. That's basically the first episode. The first episode is sort of a prologue to this major catastrophic event. For this exposition dump, we're going to break things down a little bit more because essentially the show follows three general arcs, each one centered on one member of the Brown family. There's Jennifer Brown, who's played by Diane Lane. There is Hero, uh, played by Olivia Thurlby, and Yorick, uh, Brown, the titular Why Last Man, who was uh, played by Ben Schnetzer. Schnetzer, we're doing great with pronunciation. Oh, we're so episode. on top of it. Today. So good. I'm surprised we didn't call her Elisa Klurke. It's Schnetzer. There's no other. Is it e Schnetzer? There. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll I'll take your word for it, Mister Reader Man. What is your favorite Diane Lane property, John? Oh, that's a brutal one. The only thing I can really think of her from, unfortunately, is the last season of House of Cards, where wow. I'm pretty sure they just took Kevin Spacey's storyline and they split it up between her and Greg Kinnear. She's very good in it. My favorite Diane Lane movie has to be My Dog Skip. Oh, my God. So many connections to other episodes of this podcast. She oh, my God. She's I the need mom. to rewatch She's my dog mom. Skip. Yes, it's her and Kevin wow. Bacon. I had no idea. That's her one connection to Kevin Bacon. That's probably that's a movie that I love so much for having only seen once. You had, I thought I never rewatched it, John, because you never wanted to rewatch it with me. I am not going to take this burden for the rest of our given lives. Okay, no, you can watch I, it. You are right. a grown man. You You're can right. watch my dog skip as much as your little heart desires. Oh, she was in one episode of the Romanoffs. No, two episodes. Did you ever watch that? Because I no. didn't. No, no nobody I did. Not. I'm sorry. Um, cool. Ben Schnetzer was in the movie. Uh, you really like it? It's goat. Uh, the goat. Oh, just yeah. called Goat. Okay. Really good. And that's about uh, hazing. Yeah, college hazing. Also with uh, with Nick Jonas. And, and the sister is played by the woman who is the friend. In Juno. Juno. And also great in a movie called Snow Angels, uh, a David Gordon Green movie that I very much like. To break things down, I am going to throw exposition into our listeners' ears as quickly as I can for each of our three arcs. Ian, how long do you think I can do this first one, the, the Jennifer Brown arc? Two seconds. It's going to be more than two seconds. A hundred thousand seconds i think it's going to be under that so let's give it a go 
All right. Ready, set, dump it. Jennifer Brown uh, is a Democratic congresswoman who becomes president when all the men die. A month after the deaths, Jennifer and the remaining women in government have to deal with a slew of issues from power outages to food shortages. They also have to deal with Kimberly Cunningham, former President Ted Campbell's right-wing daughter who had three boys of her own. Kimberly's grieving along with her mom, the First Lady, Marla, and ultimately feels shut out by Jennifer's new administration. Jennifer meets Agent 355, a member of a super-secret military outfit assigned to protect the president. Agent 355 is sent to retrieve Jennifer's daughter, Hero, from New York, but instead comes back with her son, Yorick. Yorick and his pet monkey, Ampersand, are the only two creatures with Y chromosomes left. Yorick is kept hidden in the White House, but ultimately gets discovered by Marla, who is then gaslit into thinking she didn't really see Yorick. Jennifer sends Yorick at 355 to Boston to find a geneticist that can give them some answers. When they leave, Jennifer continues to hide the truth, but Kimberly and her camp think something's up. Things get dicier when former cabinet secretary Regina Oliver wakes up from a coma on the other side of the world to discover she should be president. The ultra-white right-wing Oliver clashes with Jennifer, whose cabinet wants to keep Jennifer in power to maintain some stability. Kimberly gloms onto Oliver's return and ultimately leads a coup to try to take back power. Unfortunately, that's the same time as another coup, this time from outside forces, including Yorick's girlfriend, Beth, who had just visited the White House under the guise of connecting with Jennifer. Oliver gets killed by the rebels, but Jennifer and Camp make it out, including Kimberly, who wants to find Yorick's, and she thinks he's the divine answer to solving the world's problems. Huh. Pretty good job, John, but I have a correction for you. They're Ugh. in the Pentagon, not the White House. Dang it. I knew it. That's a plot point in episode no, two when the right. rioters take the White House. Ugh. And Diane Lane makes a point to be like, we can just rebuild the White House. Let Ugh. them take it. Dang it. You're right. You're right. Diane Lane has this whole, the whole time she's like, we need to help the people, not, not take care of the infrastructure. And they're like, we need to save all the art in the Met. And she's like, save the people. Don't save the art in the Met, which I agree with, but it's like a big part of her character. So, and I don't know if it's offensive that you were thrusting out your bosom as you were doing a Diane Lane impression. I was puffing up my shoulders. Okay. Cause it was all chested, no shoulders. Right. But then I was holding my purse in my left hand. Mm Mm-hmm. The, so this Diane Lane storyline, it almost entirely takes place in the sort of dark halls of the Pentagon. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the storyline that I think deals the best with the grief of the situation. Mm. The sort of general loss of life that has happened. And it does a really good job at doing so from a few different angles. I think from a sort of apocalyptic standpoint, the fact that we are dealing with uh, all of these issues because of just a severe loss of life. The second episode takes place, I think, 30 days after the the cataclysmic event. Mm-hmm. I think it should have been like three months. I think it needed we needed a little I bit more time. I think it was like change. a month and a half. They were dealing with all these issues that come up suddenly because – Uh, Actually, Eliza Clark talked about this. 49% of the population dies immediately. But if you think about the gender disparity in the workforce, so much more of the workforce died immediately. It's like that's why Diane Lane becomes president. She's way far down the line of succession, but there were 50 men ahead of her or whatever it is. And that's why it came down to her as well as, okay, 
91% of pilots or something like that are men. So just imagine almost every plane in the air goes down immediately. So, you know, think about the nuclear reactors they're working with. It's like how many... Diane Lane gives a speech to this woman who is too tired to... She's too distraught to help with a pending nuclear disaster or like a power outage. Basically, she's the only person qualified to help, but she's just too exhausted from the grief of losing her sons and everything. And Diane Lane talks her up and she makes a point of being like, look, how many people that are now running the country and running their offices and running the sewage plants or whatever were the only woman in the room before, and now they're the only person qualified to take on these monumental tasks. So that is why I think it makes sense to do it only a month after, because everything would fall apart really quickly. Yeah. I think it's one of those things that you try to deal with the immediate situation right away, and then Mm -hmm. once you kind of get up from your grief you sort of start to see that the world has fallen completely apart. And Mm -hmm. I don't know. This storyline hit me particularly hard. I'll just talk about it. Um, Mm -hmm. For those that don't know, my wife, Elise, was pregnant. And due to a series of complications, we lost our son. Um, while she was pregnant and I'm still going through it. We're recording this a couple of days actually before the due date, uh, which has been weighing pretty heavily on my mind. And there was a lot that happened in this show and the way that especially some of the characters just constantly get reminded about the human impact of this big situation Mm-hmm. in a way that felt very tangible to me. Um, so one of the characters uh, who I mentioned, Kimberly, played by with, I think, a great amount of delicacy and, but also still gravitas by Amber Tamblin. I mm-hmm. thought she did a really excellent job. Well, how about with, like a more left-wing person playing a more right-wing character yeah. with the... Uh, you know, but giving the point of view all the respect it it deserves. And mm-hmm. before we move on a little bit, John, I just want to say I, I love you. And I'm very glad that you're willing to talk about this on mic, uh, this tragedy you two have suffered, because it's very normal in society for this to happen. And so many people carry this grief around silently you know, quietly and they don't want to talk about it. And I, I get that, but uh, I, I do think it helps other people and maybe even you two to just get it out there. And my heart broke for both of you and breaks for both of you, but also I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see you getting on the other side of this grief now that some time has passed of course you're you're hitting this due date that is very real you know you you are seeing how it's like in the show and with you tragedy happens you're 
and then it goes in stages and it's shock and it's the five stages of grief or whatever. And like you said, how do you pull yourself together after that? Yeah. And you don't like compartmentalize it. It's always there. But sometimes you just really do not have the bandwidth to be able to address your feelings in the moment that -hmm. you're feeling them. And that's, I think, an element that the show does really, really well. There's some great stuff with Amber Tamblyn's character where she kind of visits this nursery that's happened with all the government employees. And she's taking little like bits and bobs of, you know, children's toys and stuff. She's kind of keeping them all in her purse because we see her in the first episode. She's very much a we need to raise our boys to be men. Sort of thing. Right. And being a mom is so much her identity. Yeah. A mom, two boys is so much a part of the daughter of the president, you know? So her identity is so wrapped up in the men in her life. So what happens when that identity goes away? How do we try to find our new identity? How do we find strength in the rest of the people around us? And it makes her sort of leading this charge to get Diane Lane char- Diane Lane's character out of office more real because mm-hmm. she feels completely shut out by this administration where she felt very much a part of her dad's political dealings. She just wants to be heard and she does it in ways that are bad and assertive mean- to say the least. <laughs> that's a that's one way to say it, but it feels true to the character. And her her character to me exemplifies the the political aspect of the show, the house of cards part of everything. What makes that interesting to me, they have to keep the government going. They have to keep everything intact that they can. They have to keep some semblance of normal. But their own personal agendas keep crossing over into their decision making. And they have to either ignore their personal agenda and be like a little cold and unemotional or make an emotional decision that everyone kind of turns on them and goes, you're selfish because you were just doing that for you, not for the greater good. Yeah. Like Amber Tamlin, especially uh, Diane Lane's assistant and they're both Democrats. Amber Tamlin's a Republican Mm -hmm. is pregnant and Amber Tamlin becomes so protective of her because she knows she's pregnant. I think she even shoots, when everything goes down at the end, she shoots a fellow Republican or somebody trying to save the pregnant woman Mm -hmm. as opposed to sticking to her political ground. So that aspect of things was so interesting to me. Everybody had their own personal agenda that conflicted with their political agenda. Yeah, the political like wheelings and dealings were some of the like least compelling parts of the show for me overall. Just the she doesn't deserve this power. We deserve this power. It's been done in other places and it's been done better before. Mm-hmm. But any time that they take a beat from that sort of narrative drive, I think it's when the show shines. The show will shine on through to the other side of this commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Ian, and I'm trying to do this commercial as quickly as possible. Please review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive Social at One and Done TV. Email us oneanddonepod at gmail.com with any suggestions or thoughts. 
If you haven't hit the skip forward 15 seconds button yet, I will be amazed. Okay, enjoy the show. The woman that has the claim to be president, she comes in an episode, end of episode two, I think. She wakes up from this coma she's been in because the building she was in collapsed or something. Yeah, and she... She's yeah. in Israel. She's one of many like very wounded people. So she kind mm. of has gotten lost in the mix of this hospital setting. And the the doctor tells her, I'm sorry to tell you this, but all the men are gone or whatever. And she just like looks up and is like, if that's true, then I'm the president of the United States. And she has an eye patch on even. <laughs> and she's just like built to be this sinister presence so immediately, which I think was... Uh, Little heavy-handed, but it's fine. Yeah. You know, she's billed as this sort of Sarah Palin or like Marjorie Taylor Greene sort of. More like Marjorie Marjorie Taylor Greene for yeah, sure. Yeah, but in terms of going on to talk shows all the time before the big event. Well, they and, say, they're like, she's anti-immigrant, anti-vax, something, something. Yeah. They really kind of. They make a point to paint that picture. Yeah, Exactly. I also saw that, too, with the Diane Lane stuff, because she has to deal with she it seems like a, it's a responsibility that she does not want, but she it's a duty that she you could always feel the the weight of things that are on her shoulder. Uh, but you'd never you could see her as a leader all the time. Mm -hmm. Like She makes a really, really great leader. She's a great leader. She does confidence and doubt at the same time, as well as she presents to be more like honest and forthright than she actually is, yeah. which becomes an issue. And it's the idea of she, you feel like she is doing the best that she can and that's totally. like all she can do. And that's all she presents herself as. But she also does still have this human side when her son is Yorick, the only living man. And yes, she wants to protect him as sort of, you know, scientific anomaly, but really it's her son She's compromised in that way. And she feels that compromise. Mm -hmm. does, does that lead us into our second story arc rather well? Kind of, because our second story arc has to be about Hero, the the daughter. Uh, Interesting. Jennifer's daughter. And you'll you'll understand why within the first couple words of my talk about Yorick. Wait, but why? The last man. So let's get boo. into you, you boo. No, I made the joke. I'm booing me. Okay, good. Wasn't so a you're, joke. I thought you I just am used to you booing me. It makes sense. So, exposition dump. That's hard, hard to say. Exposition dump part 2. Hero. Hero, a New York paramedic is having an having an affair with her married coworker who she accidentally kills the night before all other men die. Hero gets out of New York with her friend Sam, a trans man. Hero and Sam wander the country until they meet Nora, President Campbell's press advisor, who's actually been shut out by Washington, and Nora's daughter, Mackenzie. All four of them are met at gunpoint by some of the Daughters of the Amazon, a group of women who have built a fortress in a Costco-like store. Many of the Amazons have been abused in some way by men and gravitate toward their leader, Roxanne, a survivalist who isn't afraid to shoot anyone in her way. Roxanne and the Amazons take in the four but are skeptical of Sam, the only man in the group. Hero takes after the Amazons in their cult-like devotion while Nora sees the harm in their recklessness. Nora burns down the Costco so the Amazons seek out a new home. 
They try a siege on a town full of ex-convicts, but are ultimately thwarted. Nora becomes the leader of the Amazons after killing Roxanne in Hero's position at the right hand. Huh. So That's pretty good. Thank you. Thank you. Only one correction. Hero straight up murders that guy. Oh, I mean, yeah. She gets mad at him, and then she's, like, hitting him. She's throwing stuff at him, and then she's hitting him and accidentally slits his throat. <laughs> They're in the ambulance, so she, like, takes something and... And it's like, oh, my God, I slit your throat and you're dying. And it just happens. She just happens to murder him right as all the other men are dying of everything else, uh, of whatever the pandemic is. And that is a big part of her story is this guilt. She has two guilts she's carrying around. One is the fact that she murdered him and she can't tell anybody until maybe like episode seven, she tells Nora. Yeah, it's like six or uh, seven. Right. Uh, once they trust each other more. And the other thing is the guilt of the last time she saw her mom, Diane Lane. She was really drunk. They got into a fight. She told her that she was sleeping with a married man. And uh, Diane Lane called her selfish, self-destructive, and disrespectful i think or, or oh and a homewrecker or something like that it was really biting and this these are the two things that weigh heavily on her heart sam is like let's go to the white house or let's go to so, now i'm doing it let's go to the pentagon <laughs> and just see your mom and we'll have food and protection and be good and hero keeps sabotaging or putting off their journey to get there because she hates her mom so much. And I think to a certain respect hates herself Yeah, and is like, my mom is going to know immediately. And I think that is that hating herself thing, I think is such a crucial part to her, her arc because anytime they find some sort of glimmer of hope, she finds a way to sabotage it because in general, it seems like she doesn't feel like she deserves to be, you know, alive at this point and True. to be walking around free. Right. Like she should be in jail. Mm -hmm. And it also, and I like the dynamic between hero and Nora. So, I mean, this is technically hero's arc, but you know, Nora is such a huge part of it. Nora is the, you know, was sort of at the right hand of the president, but then when her husband and son died as along with everyone else, you know, they didn't need her in the White House. You know, you don't really need a press advisor when we've got bigger fish to fry and especially from a different administration. So she's just kind of on the outs and everyone in this arc is just kind of lost. Mm -hmm. And there's this idea of that I've heard like reading about the show where it's like, is the new society that is formed by this cataclysmic event, is it a dystopia or could it be a utopia? And that's where the Amazons sort of come in. This group of women who most of them have, you know, been physically or mentally abused by, you know, partners or family or. Right. They come from an abused woman's shelter. That was. Yeah. That yeah. Roxanne, who is played by Missy Pyle, she who is great in Galaxy Quest. Yeah. Uh, she basically comes in to find these women are are basically scared in this home together and she becomes their leader based on what ends up being a lie. But she 
teaches them how to be powerful. She teaches them how to kill and hunt and be daughters of the Amazon, as she names them. And Roxanne is the leader of the Amazons, and Nora and her start butting heads. And Roxanne is like this very emotional leader. She's very much led by, for lack of a better term, man-hating, or at least that's the way she's able to control her group, right? That's her, as her, she's basically a cult leader that has brainwashed them. That Her power is like, I'll unite everyone through being like, men are what ruined everything. We're what's going to save everything. We're going to save everything by killing everyone and stealing from them. Yeah, it's uh, like. It's like if Robin Hood was just like, I'll just take from everyone and see what happens. Keep it. Yeah, yeah. I'll just keep it. But the funny thing is Nora is put up against Roxanne as being like, Roxanne's the emotional one, Nora's the pragmatic one. But And she's admonishing some of the girls for like wasting food or like breaking stuff when she's like, we could take that and trade it later. Like, don't be stupid. But like... Nora burned down the whole Costco full of food just as like this power grab. So I'm like, who are well, you to, to talk to? Well, to be fair, about? Nora was going to be kicked out of right. the of the group. And so in order to stay as part of the group, in order to be surrounded by people, which seems like community is really the only way to survive. True. And, and that's kind of one of the general themes throughout the show. Stick together. I just think she could have shot Roxanne in her sleep because she had the opportunity. Oh yeah, but she wasn't. She wasn't there in her arc yet. Right. Story wise, we had to keep it going. We had yeah. to burn down the Costco for the sake of the the store. Oh, and the Amazonian part, interestingly enough, is not in the comic book. Yeah, or the graphic novel. Sorry, nerds. Yeah, uh, the Amazons are a group that is like formed by the time the graphic novel has been going on. Right. So we don't get mm -hmm. necessarily this sort of origin story, which this, this arc is particularly compelling because it's one of the few that actually has is sort of built on a backstory episode. Uh, episode eight ready aim fire is all about sort of Roxanne transitioning from sort of a put upon clerk at this i think it's called price max i think the store is called price max mm -hmm. uh, welcome to price max i love you <laughs> and her kind of taking hold of this price max through killing and then uh sort of getting the attention of this this group of women and it really showed that Roxanne was part, you know, she wasn't necessarily a born leader, but she's got the fire for it for sure. And she's, she, I, she's angry. I mean, they show her. So one of her things that's power, powerful for her uh, with the women is that she's had a mastectomy. And so she's like, look, like, this is me. This is what happened. I, I'm a survivor. You can survive too. But in the, backstory in the price max she is being sandbagged by them for taking off too much time for chemo mm -hmm. and i don't uh, even think they sell sandbags in the store uh well there's plenty of sandbags in the show because they have to line it like rivers up with them or like make barricades so mm -hmm. 
Uh, I got to think they bought one or two of those sandbags from Price Max. Yeah. I don't know. I think if I, I've been to a Price Max or two, and uh, I don't know how many sandbags they've got at Price Max. Oh, they're, they're, uh, they're really reasonable. Like they you are. could get, you could get two sandbags for like five bucks. Is it like, is it by the cutlery? Is that where it is or where, what section of the price max is it in? No, it's actually near toilets. Oh, okay. That's good. Running water. It kind of goes together. That makes yeah. sense. And you can really clog a toilet with sand. Let me tell you. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've uh, just gone to the beach and had myself a picnic of sand, and then had a fun night afterwards. Speaking of fun nights, uh, let's get to that third story arc, John. Yes. Okay. So here's why I need to uh, start. Why? I, the last man. Here's how I need to attack. This is why this is last. So that I can start the arc by saying this. At last, poor Yorick. <laughs> I knew him well. Yeah. It's actually a last poor Yurik. I know, Yurik. but it's a play on it. Okay. I know that it's a last poor Yurik. So Yorick uh, is a failed New York escape artist. Uh, we'll pick up with Yorick after he leaves the White House with Agent 355. Uh, two pilots have also seen Yorick, and 355 decides to sabotage the other pilot's helicopter in order to keep Yorick's survival a secret. Uh, 355 carries Yorick to Boston, where they meet up with Dr. Allison Mann, a Harvard geneticist who has figured out cloning and will ideally create a bunch of Yorick copies. However, like the rest of the country, Boston has become a war zone and all of Dr. Mann's equipment has been destroyed. The three set out for San Francisco, where there's more equipment. Meanwhile, they're being hunted down by the government because it's perceived that 355 has gone rogue in some way. Still, 355 is a total badass and is able to drag Yorick through all of his mistakes and whining, including a few instances where he's discovered as a surviving man. Also, he still has that damn monkey. The three end up getting captured around Ohio by a commune of women who were formerly prisoners, but they eventually get let out and Yorick gets along with a few of the prisoners. 355 and Dr. Van also develop a thing. As the three are about to leave the commune, the Amazons come in, shoot up the place. York's sister, Hero, discovers him as they're fleeing, but knows she can't go with him, so she gives him and his new friends a head start as they continue to head west. And with that, we have dumped. Um, Yorick is very annoying. Oh, my sweet lord. Very uh, privileged, and uh, I like that 355 at one point calls him out for being like, she's like, your whole life, you were taught that you were the most important person in the room, or at least you thought you were. And now that you're actually the most important person in the world, you can't care less because he is, all of his decisions are made selfishly. He's only thinking about trying to find Beth, who he tells people was his fiance, but really she dumped him. She denied him. Mm -hmm. And he's obsessed with going to Ohio and seems to have no grasp on the fact that they need to study him so that the world can continue. I have never seen a character so dense in a, and not like, not like deep or like complicated, just like thick in the head as I have <laughs> Yorick, like stumbling around in his weird little poncho and his gas mask that he tramples around the Eastern seaboard and, you know, some of the Midwestern. I wouldn't say he's dense. I think he has his convictions and at the same 
that like get. You think in the he way. has convictions? I, I yeah. think he's he's scrambling to find anything. Well, no, I mean he's like, you know, he saved ampersand because they from he's like I saved ampersand from you know testing lipstick in a lab, you know he's very uh, much I don't know he's just very he's very like that. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, he has convictions that are no longer relevant and i think that's where he sort of struck yeah i actually i i think that's a really good point he you know he's oh it actually is a good point thanks for thanks for actually thinking i can actually say something that's actually smart Mm -hmm. uh until it is um i'm giving you guff sorry no i know no no but the point that you're making Right. Most of the things he believes in and like are like, no, this is important. It's like that does not matter. We are fighting for survival right now. Like those are, for lack of a better term, first world problems. (laughs) He is. Yeah. Like he talks about his like one of the flashback seeds, that same dinner where a hero gets drunk and tells her parents that she's uh, sleeping with a married man. He's talking about his, you know, latest. show his latest escape artist trick and he's like it's all about how my life is really hard and everyone's like dude your mom's a congresswoman you're married to a wonderful like human being who takes care of you in every way that she possibly can you're doing okay man like yeah i mean it's weird that we're watching this now too because it's been on my mind a lot lately about like the starving artist thing like you know, that I've done too. But in a lot of ways, it's like, look, you're choosing this. You have safety nets. I have safety nets in life. You know, if everything was really bad, I could move back in with my parents, you know, Mm -hmm. or Natalie's parents, my wife, like I have safety nets in life. And so it's like, he is, and so does he, he could ask his parents for money. He just chooses not to. And he chooses to be a weird escape artist guy and he's like my life's so hard and it's like yeah but it doesn't have to be this is a prison of your own design yeah he has tied his identity to being put upon right entirely like he is the person that is like misery is comedy like if he if he was funny or interesting in any way because he's not let's make that clear although i think when it comes to the story he's pretty much the only comic relief like everything else is a heavy story arc yeah I think his his comic relief is often offset by the headache that I get from rolling my eyes too hard anytime he opens his mouth. I totally understand. Uh, Eliza Clark brings up a good point that, right, all these people are losing their identities, right? And his especially, it's like he's an artist that now is in a world without art that doesn't that doesn't have time for art. I'm not going to say it doesn't want or need it, but it it does not have time for art. It does not have time for him. Everyone's struggling to survive. And all of a sudden he's just like, well, who am I other than this meat puppet to everybody else? Mm -hmm. And for that, I cut him slack for everything else. I do not. Yeah. Also, you know, everyone he knows just died. So, you know, he's got that going for him. But that doesn't seem to affect him as much as pretty much every single other character. Yeah. He's just so focused on Beth. Like he barely brings up that his dad is dead, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's dark. Right. Yeah. It's Diane Lane is like, oh, you're 
you're my son and you survived and we've lost people. And she clearly is so like, it's important to her that he's back. And it's so hard for her to be like, you have to leave. Well, and then the thing about that, like interaction too, is she's just like, I'm so glad you're alive and like everything. And then he's just like, why are there still a bunch of dead bodies here? It's like, yes, bro, yes. perspective. Like, he's like, isn't this a health it? issue that there's all these dead bodies? Uh, like, we need to move them. And you're like, yeah, yeah after yeah, all know, the dude. other things we have to do. Right. Like, would you shut up for a minute? <laughs> exactly. And, and ampersand, his, his like boneheadedness and ampersand getting, you know, running away and doing his own thing are like two things that really are annoying, but are so they push the story along, you know, because it's like we need him to not take everything as seriously so that he can get into trouble so that we can keep rolling down the hill. Uh, and same with ampersand. It's like, Oh, it's a monkey. It's really loyal until it just goes off on its own. And now we need to deal with that. So mm -hmm. th those two men are just really giving everybody problems. Exactly. Especially, they don't need. especially age of 355, who I think is, again, talking about like tying your identity to something. 355 is part of this sort of elite, super secret shadow organization that pulls hits on people. And it's like James Bond. She was an orphan and then someone found her and was like, let's turn you into a killing machine. And she's, she stepped into that role with uh, a plum uh, because she knows how to kill a person. And she has constantly been, you know, attached to this organization. And so when she's like, you need to protect the president, uh, it's like, okay. And then the president's like, you need to get my son. She's like, okay. And I really like how she is so mission focused uh, because it makes, it's not about her. And she uh, contrasted with Yorick who only has tunnel vision and, but I guess 355 has tunnel vision in her. Yeah, own I was about to say too. she's, yeah. her tunnel vision is the mission. Is the mission. So it's yeah. like everyone and everything is dispensable to her if it services getting Yorick to Boston, getting Yorick to San Francisco, saving Yorick, whatever it is. Like, I mean, it actually, this builds really well into our Dunzos if we want to get to them. Let's get to the Dunzos. Right after this break. And now a word from our sponsors. Welcome to the Dunzos. This is the award show where we divvy out awards to every show that we watch. It could be the best, it could be the worst, it could be the most, it could be the weirdest. Whatever it is, we have decided that there are elements of these shows that we need to recognize. Recognize. Uh, we each have two Dunzos that we have decided on and given out. Ian, what are you giving your first Dunzo to? My first Dunzo goes to the dirtiest betrayal of all time. Ooh. 355. So her and these pilots went to New York and picked up Yorick and then brought 
him back to the Pentagon. And then the pilots in episode two, the whole time, they're like, yo, what's going on? Like, why is it only the president's son that's alive? You know, everyone's out there talking conspiracy. You know, what's what's going on? And they're they're starting to get very jaded. And 355 gets a really bad feeling about them. And then uh, at the end of the episode, she ends up giving them this really nice speech about being like, look, you have a duty. This The president is asking us to fly Yorick to Boston for this reason. Uh, like we really you have a duty to your country, to her. Also, here's two medals of honor or something or like Navy crosses or, or some very distinguished awards. And then they help her and Yorick escape the Pentagon without anyone knowing that Yorick is there so that they can fly to Boston together. And then we realize that uh, they take two helicopters and the two pilots helicopter bursts into flames and goes down and explodes. And we realize at 355, uh, at the very beginning of the next episode, sabotage their helicopter to tie up the loose ends of basically she didn't trust them and also so that when the military goes like where'd those two helicopters go they think that the two missing pilots stole them so 355 is a cold-blooded killer in many respects and she talk about tunnel vision she was like everything for the mission. Forget the fact that these two clearly had a you'd won over their loyalty. Yeah. You did not have to murder them. They were like given that. what? Medals of honor, right? Yeah, or the Navy Cross. A purple heart or to? something like that. Yeah. No, no, no. Purple hearts for someone that gets injured in combat. Apologies. Um they were like, Wow, we got these great medals and we're we're on your side. And then just savage. Right. It was so dirty. It was good for the story. Like for her character, it really showed us how it's hard for me to root for her, though, after that. Like, yeah, really, really, truly. I was like, can you root for 355 knowing that she would do this? And that was, I think, one of the toughest parts to digest about that arc in general was Mm -hmm. that you've got Yorick, who is an insufferable snob. And you've got 355, who is an absolute just, like, robot monster. Yeah, Ice Queen. And then you've got, we haven't really talked about uh, Dr. Mann, who is also on the case with uh, them a little bit, who, it was nice to see 355 and Dr. Mann sort of soften up towards each other towards the end. Like, they were both pretty hard. 355 started softening up in general. Yeah. And so, it was, I think that's it. I think... You know, instead of, you know, saving the cat, you know, 355 killed multiple cats in the beginning. And we, it just, they they were trying to play the long game, I think, with a redeemable arc for 355. And they do it because I will say on the record that 355 is my favorite character of the show. Oh. Uh the actress is incredible. She is fantastic. She, yeah. yeah, and she's only been in a couple things before this. She was in I'm Dying Up Here, which actually now that I think about that, is that one and done? No, that's that two, two and done. That's two. Yeah. Two and done. Right. Which was a showtime show about 
comedians. And then she was in something called Hermione Granger and the Quarter Life Crisis. That must and she have been played like a Hermione short, Granger. That must have been like a short or something. It says TV series, 10 episodes. Yeah, she seems British. I bet she is British. God, why do British people... It's a web series. There it okay. is. Mm-hmm. But it uh, still is, looks like a pretty big undertaking there. 12 episodes. Mm. But yeah, why are British people so good at doing American accents? Because I would never have known. Because they're... Oh, British. she was in Shameless, too. She had an arc on Shameless. That's nice. Uh, but she's really good. I really like her. And it was, that is the toughest thing for me to like her about. I know that, like, she was created to be a monster. She's trained to be a monster. But she does, we do figure out that, like, she has weird dreams. She, she has sleepwalks. sleeping. Right. She sleepwalks. She has trust issues, obviously. And, uh, Probably suppressed homosexual tendencies, although there is like a weird thing between her and Yorick, and then it's like, oh, but her and Dr. Mann. I think it's just a general dismissal of sexuality based on her upbringing yeah, that is point. coming to light now that you know she has a beat to like yeah, cause, see herself. Because she's, she's catching vibes with both of them yeah. at one point, yeah. right? For sure. Can I get what is my... your first Dunzo? My first Dunzo goes to the most gruesome depiction of an apocalypse. <laughs> because that's right. Episode one ends with the event. And I I gotta admit, when the show was going, I was like, okay, I know what the show is. I know, okay, by the end of this first episode, we're gonna see some guys falling down. They don't just fall down, they bleed from everywhere and suffer oh in yeah big it's weight. like it's like all their capillaries burst over it, the course of several minutes it and was just, a jarring mm. amount of blood and suffering that happened in that like five minutes of oh yeah just destruction like it's not just the physical brutality you also have people dying in like other people's arms and like the, the guys are like terrified and there's, they're not just like corpses immediately. Like they are like drowning and you see the, I mean, the worst one for me and that just might just be my experience was uh, with uh, Nora when she goes upstairs and she's like, guys, it's time to wake up and go to school and work. And she, you see her like undo the covers and both of her, her son and her husband are just you know presumably Did, we don't even see it we didn't see it right yeah right at but that you point. just hear her reaction no we didn't but it really set a tone for like this isn't just all men are gone what happens it is what happens when we all have a collective trauma and how do we get out of it oh and yeah i think that is that made and the especially show more even when it's happening to all the men it's not like they knew it was only the men that were going to die. They're all like, "Are is this a bioweapon? Are we all going to die now too? Mm-hmm. I think there's an aspect even afterwards of them being like, it still could happen to us because we don't know what it was. Um, although they, they never, I don't think they talk about that, but I do kind of get that sense. Uh, and also Eliza Clark talked about how she really wanted to make you feel it when, 
everybody dies. Like she wants the event to happen and she wants it to punch you in the face. But then that's the end of episode one. And then we time jump because we, for the most part, just want the series to be about the fallout. We don't mm-hmm. have to linger in the event all the time. Like No, I'm glad. Yeah, I'm glad they did the time jump. They didn't need to. but Exactly. We don't need to jump back and see what where everyone was when it happened. Yeah, it was a good it was a good structure. It is interesting, too. Did you see when the three first three episodes aired when they first dropped like the day? Uh, no, September. September 13th. So two days okay. after the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Too, which, uh, that's true. I don't know. I I don't know if that was on purpose or if that was just coincidence, but it is. I mean, I was thinking at least a lot during that time around you know the significance of nine eleven, and I wonder if people were watching that and sort of turned off. Turned off, I think is yeah for sure, or at least you know transposing their own experiences onto watching this sort of horrible event like the terror the confusion the you know just emotional weight of the sort of epicness of it all in a sick way do you think the marketers thought it might give it a boost yeah i kind of do i kind of do like people were they're like ah we're all you know dealing with this sort of terrible thing that happened 20 years ago let's just bring that back up again we're yeah it's time we we never yeah. forget. And so like we might as well just do it now. Although you know what's funny about that is like most people I talk to don't have a great memory of it. So plenty of have, have forgotten. Mm-hmm. Uh <laughs> I'm gonna Jesus cut that Christ. out. Uh what's your second dunzo? Uh my second dunzo goes to the two most insufferable privileged rich kids I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> like, okay, first of all, this family, their names are Yorick and Hero. We couldn't have like Yorick and Claire, like they both have to have weird names. And But they, the they dad say, was an English teacher. Uh, he he taught Shakespeare. Oh, that say. was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, Yorick, alas, poor Yorick, I knew him well. He was a fellow of Infinite Jest and 355's like, Oh, so they named you after a dead clown. And then it cuts away. Uh, but Hero, also, I'm like, is this, a, is this a Greek thing I don't know about? Is this Where is the name Hero from? I don't know. Maybe it's just like Hero's Journey. Who knows? Mm. It is. But it's I an insufferable a, pair. I yeah. did appreciate the in the last episode, they show, I think, the only flashback, really, where the family is together at dinner, Hero gets really drunk and out of hand and they're all arguing and she tells them about how she's seeing a married man and they're all angry about it. But also she's like, Oh, that didn't stop dad who is clearly cheating on you all the time. And everyone's like, yeah, we know dad cheats on Diane Lane. Like, let's not talk about it. And he's like texting someone the whole time. She's like, who are you texting? And he's like, it's just a work thing. And like, it probably isn't a work thing. Um, And it's just, oh, right. Diane Lane and her husband are like kind of mid, they're separated. They're splitting up, right? Because that's the thing. The night before the event, they're talking and she's like, come home. And he's like, no. And she's like, oh, okay. Right. So they like decide to separate and then he dies. Um, 
But it it did give us an insight into the dysfunctional family, why the two kids don't really want anything to do with their parents, you know, why the mother-daughter dynamic is so difficult. Um, But at the same time, it's just like I felt for poor Sam, Hero's friend, who just wanted to get to the Pentagon because his friend's mom is the president. And, of course, he can – he doesn't have to be in survival mode anymore. They could just no. go have everything taken care of, uh, of for them. And she's just so uh, right. It's just like with, with Yorick, he is so up his own ass. Like he's so is caught up in his own agenda in these first world problems that do not matter anymore. And it's like, yo, look around you. Everyone's dead. Everything's falling apart. We're struggling to find food. Let's, what are you doing? What are you yeah. doing to everybody? That and you... Sam has like pressing needs too, you know. Yeah, you know, Sam is like every other trans man in the in the world. It, they they're like fighting over the last remaining supplies of testosterone. To... Oh yeah, and 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 the end of episode two when all the other trans men take like they have like a pile of it and they take it without him. He says he only has two weeks left, which I assume would have come up more in season two, but it it doesn't really come back because mm. sam and hero end up parting ways uh towards the end of the the season as right. well the amazonians do not like sam that much no and sam ends up with uh with beth and uh jennifer towards the end of the season too benifer benifer yeah <laughs> uh geely <laughs> can i give out my final dunzo yeah you don't want to talk about geely not today. Gobble gobble. The <laughs> it's a slide from Geely. I didn't know that. I've never seen it. I haven't either. I just know there's one scene where Jennifer Lord or Jennifer Lopez is uh, laid on the bed and she's like, "It's turkey time." And Ben's like, "What?" She's like, "Gobble gobble." <laughs> What's your last Geely award, John? The last Geely. The last Dunzo. Goes to most compelling TV lactation. Wow. Yes. That's true. And this, Ian knows what this refers to for the listener. There's a dream sequence towards the end of the series where Amber Tamblyn's character, Kimberly, has a sex dream about Yorick uh, after she finds out that he is alive. And it's very steamy and they're like about to, you know, get it on. And she just dispenses from, from her chest. And it is, it was, it was just so evocative of Kimberly as a character. And it was such an interesting, that's what evocative means. Sorry. Emblematic. Of okay. Kimberly, as you're right, emblematic of Kimberly. As Amber a Tamlin, emblematic. What's the problem? <laughs> Amber Tamlin's emblematic about ampersand. Thank I you. wish ampersand was in the sex stream. I do too. That would be oh, that would be the that would make it even better if like Ben Schnetzer is behind Amber Tamlin and they're kissing and then she just lactates and then there's ampersand just like jumping in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> and he's got a fez hat. Oh. We could have, we could have, we need to get Eliza Clark on the phone, That's get her on right. the horn. Uh, but towards the end, when 
which I just thought was a really cool turn. And it was a, it was a, something that I wish we would have gotten to explore in a season two is the idea of by the end of the season, Kimberly wants to find Yorick because she's like, he is the Adam to my Eve and we are going to make this world our next paradise. And I was mm-hmm. like, that makes sense. I get that. Like I would, I was not expecting it, but I was thoroughly interested in what the possibilities of that could be. Yes. I mean, she, as soon as she finds out Yorick is alive, she is H.O. Ernie for him. (laughs) There's so much going on. There is so many feelings that are happening. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I don't know. What do you what do you think? Should we get to why it was canceled? I think we shall. Right after this commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. So why the last man's cancellation is a particularly Why unique... was the last man's cancellation? Because of the who. And a little bit of the where and the when. Uh, Definitely the when. Let's get to the when first, because the when, as we said, was after the first seven episodes aired, uh, FX decided to announce that they were pulling the plug on the show. And they said at the time that it was because of the sort of long gestating period that had happened with the show. Because they had filmed a pilot with other... Uh, cast members because they had a change in leadership because they had to, you know, sort of recast and redo the show. And then there was also the the pandemic and everything that had sort of stretched out. Partway through the airing of the show, FX basically had to either pony up and pay the actors to keep them on board for a second season or forget the show and uh, cancel it. They, they hit a point, too, where they would have had to pay $3 million even to just extend the negotiations or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And so when FX, you know, kind of started to evaluate how the show was doing and where the show was, they were like, we're not going to be extending the options of these actors. Therefore, we're just going to cancel the show. And... We don't see many things happen like this in streaming at all. Usually we let a show run, we evaluate uh, based on how many people stuck with it, and then we decide after that, okay, this had enough of an audience, we can renew it, or uh, we, you know, there it just didn't find its rhythm. But the fact that they did it in the middle of it is just so I think it's not necessarily indicative of FX as, as like a, as a network, but it is just sort of a weird little anecdote in the story of streaming that. Didn't, oh, keep going. No, just that there is this sort of hope that when you release things week by week, that it will build an audience, that it will build conversation. But We also heard later on, a couple months after it got canceled, that uh, FX chairman John Landgraf uh, was making statements. uh, Actually, I think it was on a panel. 
And he, he said, I really loved Why the Last Man personally. I really admired all the work that went into it. I really think Eliza Clark did a great job. But I will tell you, its audience decline was really, really, really steep. And ultimately, that is what made us go in that direction. Three reallys on the really steep. Uh, He went on to say, one of the key things that we have assessed for as long as we have been doing this is the trajectory of a television show across a season from its first to its last episode. We closely monitored the decline or the retention of audience. If you look at shows we've renewed, there's a higher level of retention than the shows we've canceled. All have a very steep decline. Yeah, I'll have a very steep decline from the first to last episode of the season, much steeper decline than the shows we've renewed. So, which I think is a good metric versus like overall ratings, at least in the streaming age. You know, is your audience building or is it shrinking as opposed to is it small, you know, from the beginning to the end? Because you can build a... You can build a culture around something that doesn't have a big audience, but if you have people that aren't on board at the, you know, that aren't sticking with it, then you're not going to be able to kind of build off of any sort of hype that you've tried to generate in that time that you're airing the episodes. Yeah. I, I, do you remember how much, uh, the episodes cost each? It was pretty steep, right? I'm sure it was. I don't remember the exact I wanna, number. I want to say it's like $3 million an episode at least. Yeah, a higher budget, especially, you know, they were filming this during COVID, and so they had to have all the protocols. And it does feel like they, you know, you watch the show, and I I did really like the show, but I, there is a part of me that was like, oh, this was a COVID season. You know what I mean? You no, know, it's interesting because I'm pretty aware of that, like, with uh, Righteous Gemstones, there was definitely some of that. And with uh, the comedy about the vampires. Why am I blanking on the name? What we do in shadows. the shadows. Right. Season three is such a COVID season. It's so it's so bad. <laughs> and I mean, like, they're still funny, but so much of what we do in the shadows that was season one and two is just gone. It's gone. They only have the four of them and then maybe one or two other characters for a while. <laughs> and I, I didn't finish it. I will at some point. But that one felt like a COVID season to me. Whereas this, at least there's some crowd scenes. There's 20 people in a room at so- certain points. Uh, mm-hmm. I did not get that sense as much. But you feel like if this was like an HBO show, for example, you know, something that was a little bit more settled and stable they would have and again in a non-pandemic year that the crowd seat we would have had for example like one of the things that we didn't really touch on one of the big plot points is that there is a big crowd of people that are protesting outside of the pentagon pretty much throughout the entire season and we barely see that crowd that's a good point you're right which i think speaks to even when they cut to it it's like a little sparse we could have had more stuff in that crowd. I there was there was that crowd was sort of, I think right. They had they had conflict. like twenty people, and they're like, okay, crowd the gate. All right, everybody, we got the uh, crowded gate shot. Now we're gonna go to the tents, and everyone just kind of stand behind the tents now and be upset. Great, and yeah, I I get that. There's a lot of low budget things that are like trying to be like party scene, and they have to use the same five to eight people over and over again 
or like everyone's just got to crowd, you know, the camera to make it look like there's a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, actually, you you hit that dead on the nose. That's I didn't even think I I didn't notice it, but you're completely right. Yeah, thank you. I know. And so when FX, I'm sure they're at a weird place too, where they're they're in a bit of a transition period right now, especially for their dramas. I think. Um, I was looking at their sort of current programming lineup. You know, they still got the American Horror Stories and the American Crime Stories and, like, the basically the Ryan Murphy oeuvre. Uh, you know, Fargo's still going on. Uh, yeah, got... but they just make those seasons whenever they want. Exactly, though. There is very little stability, I think, especially in their drama lineup. So when they were... I bet they're going to be gearing towards some of those sort of smaller scale dramas in the future. Uh, Something that's a little bit closer to like their comedy lineup, like what we do in the shadows, like Atlanta, like better things all, you know, all except for what we do in the shadows are ending in 2022. And they might start to go a little bit more towards like limited series or just I, yeah, I, or I think smaller this... things like Mr. In-Between. Have you seen, do you know what that I, is? I know of Mr. In-Between. It's but... about a hitman, but you can imagine there's no big scenes full of crowds in that show. It's probably more like Breaking Bad, just like three people in a kitchen, three people in a back room, you know. Yeah. I, I want to bring up two points real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, one is that the contract situation is to me the biggest killer because they signed most of these people that like the ratings were definitely the the nail in the coffin but the contract situation was they were all signed like five years ago Mm -hmm. and they assumed when they signed that that we'd be in season three or four by now and ratings would be up or at least stable and then when they'd re-sign there would be a metric to be like, okay, we know how much to pay everybody by now moving forward. But this was just such a gray area where they're like, it wasn't even a gray area. I think it's pretty obvious what they had to do based on when you renew everybody's salaries go up. Everybody's Mm -hmm. in a classic network model. It's you sign a six season deal and then in season seven, everyone has renegotiated way up because if you're going to get to a season seven, you have to be a successful show. So I just have to think they hit the thing where everyone was like, hey, we gave you four or five years. If you want more of us, you got to pony up now because you have kept us so in the gray here for so long. I'm not going to stay on unless you make it worth my while. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got to think that's a big point. Yeah. And then speaking of the future of dramas, it really makes me concerned that we are not going to be seeing six or seven season fantastic dramas like we've seen in the past, like our Mad Men's, like our The Wires, like our The Sopranos, like yeah. our Breaking Bads, plenty of other ones. I mean, uh, uh, Better Call Saul is starting its sixth and final season. Right. I'm even thinking of uh, Game of Thrones. You know. Game of Thrones. Right. That was a, uh, but that was at least a mega hit. So it was going to keep going. Whereas like all of these shows for the, for the most part 
had to grow. They had to grow from season one to two to three to become the mega hits they were for season four, five, six, seven. And I just don't see any of these streamers giving shows enough of a chance for this to happen. No. And one thing that I think is contributing to that, like the reason that Mad Men and Breaking Bad were able to find an audience was, have you heard of the term the Netflix bump? Oh, I I get it because they were put on Netflix early on. That was the thing. So they were put on Netflix during their off season. So people were able to find the show in the off season and therefore justified them coming back. And that's how they were able to build their, you know, audience season after season was because people would catch up in the off season. What's happening now is everyone, every streamer is investing in original programming and not licensing as much. So we're not really getting those sort of third party new audiences that are being attracted to these longer running shows in order to give them some sort of stability increase from season to season. Because That's a good point. The only streaming show I've ever seen leap to cable was BoJack Horseman on Comedy Central. Mm -hmm. And that was like once the run was almost done or maybe the run was already done. Too. They're, they're programming yeah. so insulated. Netflix's licensing, like Netflix was the show that was getting licensed shows. Now they are the ones that are licensing shows to other networks because they're struggling to find content. And that's Dang. the sort of change in dynamic that's been happening. So when you have this sort of, it feels like shows like Why the Last Man need to come in with a multi-season arc. Like we we pictured this for four seasons. And hopefully we could go beyond that. Which she did. She had a five or six season plan. Yeah. And it seemed like FX wanted the show to succeed. Like, you know, they could have, I mean, it seemed like it was through development hell. You yeah. Know, you don't, you don't buy a, the IP of a show in 2015 and not release it until 2017. Usually. Right. Or sorry, 2022. I mean. Yeah. That is a big difference, John. What just happened? I don't know. My brain decided to <laughs> stop. <laughs> Uh, all the was, capillaries yeah, in my okay. body are exploding and I'm dying like all the men. In yeah, you're bleeding out of your eyes. Yeah. So they there's just not en- there's just not enough to to keep that going because there's too much out there. And so I just yeah, I think for any of these to succeed, you gotta be like, look, we're gonna commit to two or three seasons. We're gonna commit to growing it. We're gonna commit to first of all, advertising, because how many streaming shows are out that you never see any advertising for. They're only relying on metrics or like for Amazon. It's like what you're buying. Oh, we'll show you a show that you might watch based on your internet traffic and what you buy. Yeah. Dude, like who watches Bosch? Who watches Bosch? And why are there five seasons of it? Why are there five seasons of Bosch? Right. Even Goliath with Billy Bob Thornton, and uh, 80s actors god Bill Hurt in the first season, at least. Like, how did that even last four seasons? That's crazy to me. Didn't uh, make any sense. That no, makes no sense. Doesn't. I think it's just we we need to keep people interested, so we only invest in a couple seasons at a time. And yeah, I think that's I just think the that's... model that we're we're gearing towards. So anything that has this sort of long like this long play uh, is a tough thing to to sell it just makes me sad because this is what made the quote golden age of television era 
so strong and so amazing. And this is what drove so many filmmakers to television. But it was the golden age of cable. And now we are beyond cable. And that is the, the interesting part. But to your point about this is what brought in filmmakers, I think we're actually bringing more filmmakers in because of this model, because they don't have to be tied down for so long. Yeah, it's going to be the golden age of limited series. Probably. Oh, so many. Yeah, this is. And that's what FX, I think, is leaning hardest into right now in terms of a content strategy. They Which is want fine, limited series. Because we've, we've talked about this, too. Most TV shows don't have an ending. Most no. TV shows are cut off before it's, it's time. And at least now we're getting stories that are longer than 90 minutes that are told in a different act structure than we're used to that are complete or feel complete. Mm-hmm. And that is what makes limited series so good right now or shorter arcs. Like I think we've talked about it on the podcast before. Like I love vice principles because it was supposed to be a movie and instead they just decided to make it two nine episode seasons. And it was like, we have a story it's longer than a movie and we're just going to make it two seasons cool and uh i am if we start to do more of that uh just i i i would i'd appreciate that that's fine absolutely tell the tell the story you need to tell and which is why we haven't really talked to about this season of tv of why the last man ends on so it's so open yeah like, i really wanted to see what happens with um 355, because they basically end up with 355's uh, secret organization is like, you know, basically opens up the Mercedes door and is like, get in. Get in. And we're like, whose hand is that opening up the Mercedes door? Uh, and I I do. I Okay. I mean, John, would let's let's get into it. Would I renew? Yes, yes, I would. I thought you were going to ask me. Like, Yeah, I know, but I changed it up. Because <laughs> uh, I, I just want to throw our listeners for a loop. I, I'm surprising them and myself and you all in with a moment's notice. So that's what makes this fun. Uh, I would renew because it was interesting. It was surprising. I think I'll probably check out the graphic novel because I do want to see what happens the biggest flaw with the show to me was it had the bloodline problem, which is of course the three season series on Netflix starring Linda Cardellini, Norbert Leo Butts and Kyle Chandler. And uh, who's the guy that won the Emmy for it and was in star Wars. Ben Mendelsohn. That's it. Uh, Which like, that was a great show and I loved it, but it was very much like the beginning of the episode was great. The middle, I would be like, all right, I'd check out a little bit. I'd like be on my phone. And then the end of the episode would have such a good cliffhanger. I'd be like, I got to keep watching. And this show did feel a bit of that way to me. A little bit less so, but there did, there was some filler that was probably unnecessary. Mm -hmm. But I would renew. It, It took a while to get there. Like even Eliza Clark talks about, the first five episodes are a little slower because she's laying so much track 
and the second half of the season is very strong. Um, I would actually, I disagree with her on that, but I'm sure she's watched it a million times, so that's the way yeah. she feels. I I do think that the first episode is fantastic. The uh, it does sort of slow down a little bit. I do think that probably the strongest triplet of episodes are the last three. Then John, it leads to the question: Would would I renew? Yes. See, we can keep people on our toes that way too. You can try That's to start right. something. I'm what just a twist! Cut you at the knees. What just an M night you. Shyamalan's TV Apple TV series with Rupert Grint twist. What's it called? Give you three seconds. Three, two. No, I don't know. One servant. I would renew because there. I I did want to be around these characters more, except for Yorick. Yorick, if you know what would be great, he chills out a bit at the near the end. Uh, he starts because they give it him out. less lines. Finally, <laughs> I thank God they just kind of kept him. You know what was great about the the arc where they were at the commune of the the female prisoners was that 355 and Dr. Mann could have conversations in the foreground and we could see Yorick in the background talking to somebody else. It's like, yeah, he's still here, but we don't have to hear him speak. And that's where the show finds its sweet spot. Wow. It's the idea of Yorick, not the actual listening to Yorick. Yeah, they really make us fester with him. A lot. He's like, oh, he always has this like energy that is just really grating. And you, it's the thing where you're watching a movie or TV show and you're going, no, don't do that. Yeah. And it's everything with him is no, don't do that. Like he follows the monkey into the subway uh, and gets into subway water, <laughs> like where there are obviously hundreds of dead bodies. And not to mention, I wouldn't get in subway water if it was just standing, regular standing subway water, let alone knowing there are hundreds to thousands of dead bodies down there. Like, mm-hmm. come on, Yorick, get it together. Alas, I did not feel bad for poor Yorick. I no. did want to see more, especially of like the Nora and the Amazons storyline. I would have been interested. I think... I hope they wouldn't stick around too much with like the secret shadow organization stuff. I hope that would just be like a little bit of season two. I'm not, I wasn't really as interested in that. Uh, it's like so, the hook that gets you to season two. Yeah. Though. So I think yeah. that I would renew it because I think there would be a good season two and I would want to spend more time with these people. Uh, any final thoughts? Cause I've got, I've got one, but why don't you it, give me your one. Uh, we didn't talk about how there's one episode called Weird Al is Dead. Okay, that was one of mine, too. Yeah, we need to. So, okay, and the context for that episode title, for for listeners, Ian and I love Weird Al desperately. They need I've to seen him five times in concert, and then me and you went to that UHF 20, 30th 20th year anniversary. anniversary. I think it was 20th. No, 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 it was like 30th, yeah. Or 25th. Uh, anniversary screening and Q&A with Weird Al and the director. I got to ask him a question. It was a highlight of my life. Do you remember what question you asked him? Yeah, I asked him if there was any uh, sort of extra sort of sketch stuff that got left on the cutting room floor. Did he say? He said that he gave one example, but he said most of the stuff that they filmed was in there. Yeah, okay. I'm not going to get into it. But even that, the context for that, 
episode title? Do you remember it in the in Why the Last Man? I just remember that basically uh, Yorick realizes that Weird Al is dead, and it makes him sad. Like well, that's the gra- that's when the gravity of the situation hits him. Is he's like, oh my god, Weird Al is dead. Kind of, except for he's still dismissive of his like for Weird Al, which is again it's something I don't like about Yorick. He. The whole thing is he's listening to uh, there's like a group of women singing a Radiohead song and it's sort of this sort of chamber choir, you know, meditative space. And uh, Yorick says, I saw Radiohead live. Well, my sister made me go because she wanted to show me that there was music outside of Weird Al. And I was just like. Yeah, there's music. You don't have to be dismissive of your like for Weird Al as a kid. I don't think that was dismissive. I, I think, think that was knowing Yorick. Him... He hates everything, so he's not, he was bound to hate Weird Al at some point, and that just Weird, Weird Al comes into this in another way. Strangely enough, uh, not weirdly enough. Um, I was so I didn't know what Why the Last Man was about, and I was gonna start watching it on a Sunday. And on a Saturday, I was listening to an episode of Comedy Bang Bang with Weird Al. And he's like, oh, you know, like the show Why the Last Man. You know, the premise is that all men are dead and it's just all women except for one man left. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, I I love to go into things having knowing nothing about it. Like, that is yeah. the way I want to consume my media and Weird Al spoiled the, it is the premise of the show. It's the crux of the it's show. It's literally the log line. But I would have liked to have known nothing. And I do wonder what the pilot would have been like to me if I was just watching it. And then I was like, oh my God. I thought you were going to see say, I wonder what the pilot would have been like if you had to see Weird Al die. Well, that would have been. I would have turned it off. Okay. I can't handle that trauma, but you know, that's, that would have really surprised me. And in a way I was robbing robbed of that surprise, just like we're robbing you, the listeners of that surprise. If you go and watch it now, there it is. Do you have any final thoughts? I have one final thought, John, and that is Amber Tamlin's character. Amber, is it Tamlin or Tamlin? Tamlin B. Okay. Is she redeemable to you? Because she is fairly insufferable. She is always causing problems for Diane Lane. Uh, She has this very, uh, you know, just stereotypical Republican agenda that she is constantly pushing on people in a way that's like, all right, we get it. You believe in these things. Please stop. And she's kind of stuck in the past, but she's just kind of insufferable in her own way. But at the same time, her main objective is to save humanity. And she, with her, her sexualizing Yorick, her helping out the pregnant woman, her, uh, when New York is, uh, when New York is about to be flooded, She's like, we have to go into this building and save like 80,000 uh, sperm things. Yeah. And she, donations. That, yeah. And they're like, we have donations from other places. And she's like, yeah, but that's like a special place for some reason. And even though she's insufferable, 
her only objective is to save humanity. And I got to say, she seems to be the only person who is truly looking long-term on all this. I don't know if she's the only person that's looking long-term, but I do get what you're saying. And I do generally think that she is redeemable because in large part to Amber Tamblin's performance that she is able to infuse her with enough humanity because in the wrong hands, that character could be an absolute clown. And I agree. There is a sensitivity that Amber Tamblin brings to that role that I think makes Kimberly an overall more compelling person. And because I guess in the wrong hands, that character could be the destructive side and the narcissist, like not narcissist, the um, eh, narcissistic, I a mean, little bit. Yeah. Uh, I mean, she does think of herself as Eve in the, in the garden of Eden. So true, yeah, true. <laughs> she does have that element to her, but she has this sort of, she could be really big and brash and annoying because of her politics and because of the stances and the the times that she dug deep she does dig her heels in and but there's enough care put into that performance that makes her feel like she does care not just about what's in front of her but what is long term and that makes for somebody that I could see fo- I could follow in a way that and I could identify I could find inroads to her character as opposed yeah. to just seeing her as a as a facade of right-wing nonsense right where like and especially like being written by left-wing people clearly you know like it could have been and being played uh, by such a you know it could have been a caricature that is like, just like annoying or unbecoming or untrue or whatever you want to say um and, yeah because her and 355 to me I'm like, they're in many ways irredeemable, but also seem to be the only two people that are truly looking long-term, that are truly like, yeah, this moment is terrible, but if we don't get past a like a year, we got to look a year ahead. We got to look 20 years ahead. We got to look a thousand years ahead here. We got to do these things now because... Yes, if we focus on this, millions of people will die because we should also be focusing on the generators. But this is the most important thing. Um, And it's interesting to me how people pick what's important to them and just go. Even Mm. Hero, it's like she finds redemption and being with the Amazonians. And like first she helps the girl that has a leg wound. Uh, and needs a tetanus shot, you know, then she's helping a gunshot victim and her objective at least becomes, I can focus on helping people on helping these people. And then I won't have to think about myself or I can redeem myself. Um, so that was interesting. Mm -hmm. Should we wrap this up after I just say one more thing? And that's, I could watch Missy Pyle do anything all day. Always. She's very good. Yeah, I really, that character surprised me many times. I thought I had her pegged, and then there was a twist. Even even her backstory, I did not see coming, Same. and I really, really enjoyed that character. Too bad she got her ass shot in a pool, and yeah. 
That was one of my things about Nora. I was like, okay, she's so pragmatic, but she ruined a perfectly good pool. She could have <laughs> shot her into just onto the ground. Okay. She didn't have to fall into that pool. Um, oh God. All right. Ian, where can people find us? People can find us on Twitter and Instagram at one and done TV. People can email us at one and done pod at gmail.com. Not one and done TV at gmail.com. That is somebody else's email. I do not know who that is. So do not email that email unless you want to email a complete stranger. Uh, We also have one and done TV.com, which is basically for now, just our bios and episodes that have come out. And uh, we also have my Venmo at Hamil Chin, which you can always, always, always Venmo mean money. Uh, any amount of money is fine. And uh, going back to the email thing, uh, you know, send us your thoughts, though. I know I'm always discouraging email, but right now I'm like, I'd like some feedback. What do you like about the show? What could you maybe lose about the show? Or when does your... Uh, attention dip or you know but if uh you just really hate the show then keep it to yourself we don't need to hear that yeah we're doing that's what twitter's for we're doing this because we like it not because we want to yeah you're not constructive criticism uh can be good but just criticism will will break us Um, yeah and then we'll break you (laughs) we'll send our big brothers to break you yeah our dads could beat up your dads yeah probably what uh can i give Did I miss uh, can i give a plug yeah yeah um just check out how to with john wilson on hbo max <laughs> damn it uh, i think it's really a, an important show for everyone to watch it it brings people together and we all need it all so right how to and- with john wilson seasons one and two are on hbo max no i'm in no way affiliated with the show i just think everyone should watch it I'm going to plug uh, this plastic scraper that's really good for your dishes. <laughs> that, like, it, you know, you get in those arguments about soaking dishes and about, uh, like, just, you know, tomato sauce clinging to the edges and it's in pot. There's just this little plastic, it's like a square scraper, and you just scrape the edges and it has made dishes far easier for us. And, and you uh, have no idea where you can get this or what it's called i mean i could go into the other room and find it but we gotta end the podcast well with that i think we are done one and done tv Brought to you by Lack of Hustle Media.